0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Emily Bell, the editor of Lucia Berlin's short story collections, A Manual for Cleaning Women, and An Evening in Paradise, both of which are now out from FSG.
1: I am a huge fan of Lucy Berlin, and, so, and that's an understatement. So it was so cool to get to talk to Emily about her process and even how these stories came about,
0: honestly. Yeah, and you've been talking about a manual for cleaning women almost as long as this podcast has existed. <laughs> yeah, what, it came uh, out four years ago? So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so a, a long time, and... I I never thought that we would have the opportunity to talk with the editor of the short story collection, Lucia Berlin, uh, passed away in the early 2000s, I believe. So uh, we talked to her editor, Emily Bell, about the process of what it's like to publish a short story collection like this. And even if you
1: haven't read any of Lucia Berlin's book, definitely keep listening. She provides some amazing insight into how the publishing industry works, how being a book editor works, and just really a behind-the-scenes look
0: that you really don't get anywhere else. And if, like Autumn said, you haven't read it yet, I'm pretty sure that Emily will convince you. I'm 100% sure Emily will convince you. (laughs) (laughs) So here is our conversation with Emily Bell, editor at FSG. So today on the podcast, we have the editor, Emily Bell, with us. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. So we're like so excited to get to talk to you. We're going to, a little bit later, talk about
1: your work on Lucia Berlin's short stories. But before we jump into that, um, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, sure. Um, I'm Emily Bell. I am
2: an editor at FSG. Um, I edit fiction and narrative nonfiction. I also um, co-founded and run um, the FSG Originals, which is our paperback original line. Um, And I work closely with the NCD team, which is a relatively new imprint at FSG too. So that's sort of like my professional uh, self. I live in California. I live in Petaluma, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. And that's kind of an exciting, fun fact about me because I don't live in New York City. I did for 10 years and somehow convinced FSG to let me work remotely. So um, that's where I am now in California. Uh, I go to New York all the time, but um, two children, a two and a half year old boy named Clyde and a 12 week old daughter named Vale. And yeah, that's, that's what I spend my time doing, (laughs) hanging out with them and, and, and working about it.
1: That's awesome. Well, as we mentioned, when we were talking to you earlier, FSG and FSG originals and M C D are some of our favorite imprints. So we've just been really excited to talk to you more about them and the books that you all
0: publish. Um so you mentioned that you worked on several different types of books, but did you originally intend to become a book editor or was that something that you discovered along the way? Yeah, I mean
2: no. I, I studied English in college and um, I was always a really close reader. And so when I was graduating college, I was like, what do I do? Um, and like most you know, English majors, and um, <laughs> I applied to the Columbia Publishing course in New York because I thought, you know, that's like one thing I can do that gets me closer to something I could potentially be interested in. So it wasn't like a, you know, I wasn't... You know, hitching my wagon to anything permanently but um I had a next step and I did want to be in New York I knew that it just kind of it just kind of happened it wasn't I don't think it was something I wanted to do actually I know at one point I thought I might want to be a magazine editor editor for food magazines I, I worked in restaurants and hospitality for a long time and that was sort of my other my other love and long my long rambling answer to questions no I didn't always know I wanted to do it um but I got really lucky and I had have an incredible mentor sean mcdonald who from the very beginning he always just encouraged me to trust my taste and it was always important to him that i was having fun doing what i was doing and so as long as i could keep doing that then i just kind of kept doing the job in it um, and one thing led to another so
0: that's really cool I'll say yeah that that is really cool and I feel like that's something that you kind of stumble upon it's almost like a job that you didn't know existed and then once you realize it existed you're like oh that's cool I would like to do that
2: I feel kind of lucky that I didn't that it wasn't like because I know today I mean I'm not like, like super old but I'm a lot older than uh, than well I talked to you know kids coming right out of college and They asked about like getting internships and you know how you get into the small tight knit world of publishing and there were websites when I was 22, but it wasn't the same or and I wasn't paying attention that way either, so I didn't have a dream job and so I couldn't be disappointed by not getting it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, And in that way, I kind of got to just. I mean, I got a dream boss and then my job sort of became a dream job It wasn't I didn't know it was going to be that but it just kind of worked out
0: so when we talk about an editor I feel like for readers it's just one of those words or job titles that we're not really sure what it means but we've heard of it um so for our listeners who don't exactly know what an editor does um what does a day in life of you know your job as an editor look like
2: um well now it's like a whole ton of emails (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm either like ignoring or addressing and if I'm addressing them then I'm not getting any actual like editing done. If I'm editing, then I'm being terribly unresponsive to emails. So um but like at its core, first step in in my job is is acquiring titles and so agents writers have agents and they send editors books that they think, you know, would fit their list and fit their taste. And so I'm reading those submissions and you know, deciding if it's something that I think I want to publish and, and for me I have to be like head over heels in love with something and think it's like unbelievably special unlike anything I've read or you know published before because it's a ton of work <laughs> to publish a book and and also I like don't want to let an author down I, I if I had spent years and years writing a book, I wouldn't want like my potential editor to be lukewarm on my book. So, so anyway, there's a lot of reading. There's a, a whole lot of saying no, which like feels bad, but I, I do know it's like the right thing to do for lots of reasons. And then the editing itself is, you know, I'm not a copy editor, so I'm editing for like style and structure and character development. And um, the stuff I publish is not, like the fiction I publish is not super... <laughs> plot driven <laughs> not like it's not what I care most about I care most about really interesting writing and and sort of the narrative tension and momentum substituting for the plot um, that's what keeps me involved so so a lot of the stuff I publish is very voice driven and the editing I do is as opposed to saying like this person needs to make this kind of a decision in order for that person to like fall in love with. I don't even know. I, this is me pretending like I know anything about <laughs> at all. Uh, really, I just kind of try to like inhabit the world that the writer already built themselves, and then track the narrative logic of that world and.
0: I find it very interesting that you obviously have a style as an editor as well. It's not just you have, like, this writer and their style, which you're interacting with, but you personally and the titles that you're looking for have a style. So did you develop, your like, your editing style in the books that you're looking for through the course of your career, and what did that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, no, I didn't – it developed. I, I didn't, like – it wasn't
2: by design, but I just – one thing that is, is I've learned is true about myself is I, I know what I like. And when I really like something, I kind of won't back down about it being like unequivocally good right? <laughs> that, that, that I sort of have a unfounded amount of confidence about. I'm like, this is quality. So I was lucky I wasn't in a position to some, cause sometimes when you're, when an editor is coming up, they you know you think like oh maybe this is marketable or saleable so i should acquire it and that that can be a successful way of publishing it's just not the way i i just can't do that i don't know how to do that and so my sort of taste and what i what i like emerged as like my driving force as as how i how just how i acquire and 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 because of that you know a continuity uh, emerged in my in my list as i continued to acquire things it just it became clear that um, yeah there was a there was a style that i that i liked but that i hope evolved like that's why i am pretty i try to be aware of not doing the same thing over and over again because that's boring and i don't i don't want that god forbid <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so one of the books or i guess it's a couple of books that you've edited we were really interested in talking to you about and One of them was A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin, which was published in 2015. And I feel like when that book came out, it kind of broke the internet in the sense that I I couldn't go anywhere for weeks and months without people talking about that short story collection. And I was surprised when I was doing research that she'd had some additional short stories published in the 90s, but... It really seemed like her work resonated in a really new way when it was published in 2015. Was that something with that collection in particular that you expected to happen?
2: You know, I didn't expect it to be as successful um, as it was and continues to be, but I knew it was Really special when I read it, and I knew that I did have a sense that it was going to resonate with especially younger women readers. Uh, because, well, first of all, there's something about about her writing that gives you this feeling of discovery—like you are the only person who has read these stories, even if it was everywhere on the internet. As you're reading it, the experience of reading it feels like it's like you're you're discovering something that was made for you, written for you, and that rarely happens so I and I just like when I read them on submission I I had the feeling that that would be not a universal reading experience but pretty widespread so that but that's about as much as I knew you know I had no idea that um that it was gonna get the traction that it did in the media and that um people and and internationally I mean we've published it it's been sold in like over 30 countries now and it's well over a hundred thousand copies in Spain which is A lot. So, I mean, I can't say I. I definitely. I I had no idea it would be as successful as it was, but I knew. I did know it was special. That's for
0: sure. It it sounds like you're very happy that, you know, the readers realized that and agreed with you that also it's so special and that there was that connection there. The story goes is that Autumn found this surf story collection. She read it. She gushed about it for over a year. We took publicity photos with it. It's all over all of our media. She loved it that much, and also the cover, of course. And then she's like, Kendra, you need to read this. I'm like, Yeah, I know. So I finally picked it up, and I read it, and I was like, Autumn, these stories are amazing. And she's like, Yes, Kendra, I told you this two years ago. <laughs> I feel like that's just what you were describing, that these stories are very much special and you feel like you're just you're discovering them. And there's just something about her writing um, that it, that is amazing. But she has been writing for a long time and, and these were, you know, like reissued. Were all of them reissued stories or were there some of them new that hadn't been published yet?
2: No, they had all been published. So there was a publisher called Black Sparrow Presses, actually, in Santa Rosa, California. Which all of her stories had been published before. They just hadn't been published, th- this selection and in this order. And that was done by a good friend of Lucia's, um, Stephen Emerson. He selected the stories and compiled them and found an agent through a writer named Barry Gifford, and the agent, Catherine Fawcett she sent them to me um, and she was like, this is like a very strange, I mean, she's an incredible writer, but it's very strange. I know it's not going to be a huge book or she she thought it wasn't going to be a huge book. And But I fell in love with them and um, in large part, well, because she's an incredible writer, but also they took place in a lot of them took place in, in the East Bay in California where I was born in Berkeley and I grew up in the Bay Area and in El Paso, Texas, where my grandmother lives. My mother was raised there. I spent a lot of time there. So they they also very much felt like home to me when I was reading them. I mean, the characters in her story and and the voice just felt—it's just—it felt like it's felt so familiar, and yeah, and special. And and I and I feel like even if you aren't from the Bay Area and have not spent time in El Paso, Texas, like that—that that, she still has that effect on you. But it was it was extra for me because of that.
1: And then so that collection came out in 2015 but then just this past year you edited a section second collection of her work evening in paradise so how how did that second collection of her stories come about her
2: one of lucia's sons jeff berlin he um he's the executor of the state and you know he he had the idea of publishing like the rest of the stories and i (laughs) didn't want to do that because I really didn't want readers to feel like if we did another book that it was like a b-side or like you know and all the rest you know like mm-hmm. I didn't want to it's I I publish a lot of short story collections um it's very important to me that they the the book feels greater than the sum of its parts that it's like it should be a book in the world it's not just a you know a string of stories that there's yeah and like a a particular order and a logic to that order and so and I really worried about the reception if we just did like all the rest of the stories of it just being like oh they're just kind of trying to capitalize on the success of the first one and and Mm -hmm. these are the leftovers you know and so I he sent me all the rest of the stories and then I went through and I selected the ones that I thought were um were the best, but also sort of flowed narratively. And it is, it is organized pretty much chronologically. Um, and that was Jeff Berlin's idea. Um, but yeah, so I selected the stories in the second one, An um, Evening in Paradise. And I really wanted it to feel like this sort of slim, it's a lot smaller than a Manual for Cleaning Women. And I wanted it to feel like this kind of jewel box. Uh, and there, and the, the stories in that one are a little less gritty, a little, there's a little more like kind of glamour, to them and a little more nostalgia to them which is not something i'm usually like all that interested in but you know lucy can do no wrong and (laughs) to do nostalgia she's the one um or like nostalgic for a time you never lived in that's sort of that's sort of the, the sentiment um that i had reading um and like selecting the stories for
0: evening in paradise if that makes sense And we'll be back with more of our conversation with Emily Bell after a word from our sponsor. So the sponsor of this week's episode of Reading Woman is us.
1: Yes, we are so thankful for our patrons. Many of you have been with us from the very beginning supporting this podcast. And not only has it helped make this podcast possible, but also we have loved getting to know so many of you, our biggest fans, who support this podcast.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the great things about having a Patreon is that we can develop closer relationships with you all and you could, we can have discussions about different things about the podcast. Often we will put polls up on our Patreon page and then our patrons will give us feedback on things they like, things they didn't like, things they'd like to see in the future. And one of those things is we have a Patreon book club. Yes, yeah, so we have a quarterly
1: book club where the patrons get to vote on what book they would like to read and discuss and then we have a live hangout, a Google hangout right now, where we all get together and talk about it. And it's a lot of fun.
0: And we're always looking to add new things for our patrons. So for example, recently we added our patrons to our close friends feature over on Instagram. So we will put special stories into our little feed there and it is available to our patrons because of this cool new feature that Instagram has put up. So uh, today, I was showing them like how I edit the podcast and what that looks like.
1: We'll probably end up sharing, I don't know, just a little behind-the-scenes things of like what we're reading or what we're doing, so be sure to check that out. And there are different levels that accommodate all kinds of budgets and needs, so ranging from $1 all the way up to $50, so be sure to go and check that out. And as a patron, not only are you helping spread the word about women writers, but you're also helping us keep the lights on as it were with this podcast. And we
0: greatly appreciate all of your support. And as we mentioned earlier, we would not be able to do this without you all. So if you would like to become a patron of reading women, go to patreon.com slash and you'll be able to find us there. Or you can check out the link, which will be in the show notes. So typically, when you're working with an author, they're still alive and present to give you feedback on your comments on their work. But since Lucia Berlin had already passed, how was that different than how you normally worked in regards to your process?
2: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I I definitely it was mostly more about sort of organization and and order of the stories. And um, we didn't do any editing for you know any of the things I normally edit edit for really because she was in no position to say yes or no. And and she's so good. I'm like, I don't I don't wanna <laughs> I don't want to touch anything <laughs> you've <read. laughs> copy editors, it was an interesting process with our copy editors because it's hard to know if something was a deliberate like especially you know, certain punctuation and it's hard to know if it was deliberate or if it was a an error that's just been carried, you know from different versions of the story, from when she first wrote it to when it was, you know, set for literary magazine. And then if it was, you know, reset for one of the early collections that Black Sparrow published, it's hard to know if it was deliberate or if it was never caught or if it was introduced later on. So it's kind of interesting, but um, the ones that seemed like totally egregious and could not possibly have been deliberate, then we would make those kinds of changes. But otherwise we really, we, we really left it as is, but yeah. And those are conversations I was having with Emmanuel for cleaning women with Stephen Emerson. And then with evening in paradise, uh, with Jess Berlin, her son. So, but it is, a, it's a very funny, odd position to be in to, to try to figure out if somebody intended something or not.
1: Yeah. I c- can't even imagine what that would be like. <laughs> Um, But I'm so glad that you were able to reintroduce a whole new generation of us to her work because I know for me it's been really special to read both of her collections and I'm a huge short story fan and she's just something else, like seriously.
2: Yeah, it was cool to, um, it was cool for me because I could argue that, or I did argue that you know, on its own, it's an incredible collection, but I also can argue that it is very much in conversation with the kind of writers I was already published and that I continue to publish. You know, I, I, it wasn't just that I was like, Oh, I'm going to publish a posthumous collection. That, those were just the circumstances. You know, I would have, I, if, if I had gotten this collection from a living writer, I would have, you know, who was 22 years old or, you know, 95 years old, I would have, I would have published it too. And so, um, I don't know. That that felt right to me, that it it all made sense within the kind of work that I'm already doing.
0: So you mentioned that her work had been previously published by a small press. Why do you think that it took so long for the literary community to catch on of how brilliant Lucia Berlin is when she'd already been published? Is it because she had more national attention? Or what do you think the reason for that is?
2: I think it's, um, I mean, I think there's definitely that, I think, you know, FSG publishing it, we are, I feel very fortunate that, you know, FSG is such a storied and well-respected history and backlist that, you know, when we publish something, reviewers pay attention and, um, it's a privilege to work at a place like that. I'm really, and I, it's a privilege to work with my colleagues because everybody, um, everybody does such good work in that, and we all benefit from that. So, there, so there's that for sure. I think that, you know, especially in Manual for Cleaning Woman, a lot of the subject matter is kind of grittier. You know, she, she was an alcoholic, and um, she writes about that. She, she was recovered by, by the end of her life, by her— um, I guess it was probably her—in her 60s that she recover. Um, but she writes about, you know, being in a drunk tank in Oakland. And it's, there are places that, at the time— I think you know, in like the '60s, '70s, '80s, when she was writing a lot, people didn't want to see women in those positions and predicaments and and sort of life phases and choices and um, and I think that people are less sexist now, maybe like uh, not a whole lot less, but enough um, enough to realize that everybody, um, both men and women, like there's not like a Kind of fairer sex, you know that we are all fallible, and I don't know. I, I so I think so. I think there was more of a sort of open mindedness to the subject matter. Also, think that you know, there's a kind of sort of East Coast literary elitism. Uh, this sort of like canon of East Coast writers, and and she is a sort of decidedly Western writer, and which is one of the reasons why I was so drawn to it. And I think that people aesthetically things are kind of not just in books, but um, are kind of shifting more um, away from New York a little bit, and and definitely more western facing, which I think is cool. So I think that was part of it too. She somehow makes these. I, I was thinking about it today in the car. Like it's it's almost aspirational, even though even some of the like most upsetting situations in her stories like the way she writes about it is so I don't know she's it's so authentic she's so authentic the way she moves through the world that like, it makes you want to be that way it makes you want to see the world the way she sees it even when she's seeing you know very upsetting things and I think we need that right now that that level of like clarity and seeing human beings and seeing ourselves I
1: I think That's so true. And I definitely felt that way when I was reading her stories. But also, I was really interested because of that to read the memoir, Welcome Home, which also came out end of last year. And her voice is so consistent. It's just amazing. And you're right, like her her view on the world is just something really special which is why I was kind of sad that she wasn't able to complete it before she died. I mean, what was that process like trying to put together that work in particular, since it was incomplete?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was her son, Jeff Berlin, really wanted to um, put Welcome Home into the world. And initially, when he proposed it, I, um, I was a little skeptical, because it was so incomplete. But then he talked about all the photographs he wanted to include, and then I asked him if there were any letters, which there were. And so I thought, okay, if we have those—you know—the sort of sketches of the places she lived, plus photographs, plus the letters. We'll get a really it's still incomplete, but a more a more um, satisfying nonfiction picture of her life. And so, um, so that was really, Jeff, it was Jeff Roland's baby for sure. And I, I helped do this, some of the selecting of the, um, of the photographs, but he really, he really took the charge on that one. And, um, and it was kind of fun for me because then I just got to enjoy, you know, it didn't feel, um, like quite as much pressure, you know, <laughs> it's his, you know, it's his, his mother. And, um, I wanted him to have ownership over that project.
0: And I think it's so wonderful that you have we have these letters that we have this memoir. Like Autumn said, the voice is so consistent. And I think for people, especially studying writing, they're going to be studying Lucia Berlin and her short story. I did a, a course, and it included a lot about Katherine Ann Porter and the way that the subject matter interacts with Lucia Berlin's is very interesting because of this like similar location and uh, style and just feel of the stories. And so I, I can totally see, you know, grad students in their seminar class setting Lucia Berlin and like that grad student writing that seminar paper and like going to like these, this memoir with the photos and different things. And that that's something that I think is so important for, especially for women writers to be able to tell their stories, not just in fiction, but in nonfiction and, and recognizing that. And I, I just finished her memoirs yesterday. And I'm about a quarter of the way through Evening in Paradise. And just seeing the parallels in, because it is a lot of it's autobiographical and being able to see those differences and just the mechanics of how she wrote the story. All of those materials are there. And I just think that's so beautiful because I think it's just just such a shame that she wasn't recognized in her lifetime for how good of a writer she was.
2: Yeah. No, I, I mean, I agree. And it's a I like knowing that You know, that she she had she had to write and she did it and as a working mom, I know what it means to take time away from your children to do your work. It's hard and you feel guilty and you know it's gonna impact your children in some way. Um some good ways and in some maybe not so great ways. So it makes me very happy to think that her her sons are here to reap the benefits of her hard work and her talent, you know?
0: Well, we could chat probably all day about Lucy or with you. Uh, We just adore her, Uh, but we wanted to ask you a few questions uh, before we let you go. And recently we've interviewed book cover designers and talked to them about how we as readers can support women designers. So I want to ask you the same question, uh, but in regards to editing, how can readers support women editors in the publishing industry? Oh, that
2: is, such a good generous question um buy books i mean and buy books that you buy books that you think are gonna well for 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 me personally the kind of work i do buy books that you think are are gonna challenge you when you're reading descriptive copy even if there's something that i'm like "Ooh, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable like buy that book you know like don't just buy the book that's gonna reinforce your own worldview like buy the book that's gonna make you think differently about the world that those are the kinds of books that I'm trying to publish and uh so that would be <laughs> selfishly but that's what I'd like for
0: for people to do I,
1: I think that's such a great answer because I feel like some of my favorite books that I've read in the last three years have been books that have challenged me that. Books that maybe I wouldn't have necessarily picked up without encouragement or something like that. So that's, that. I love that. That's just such a happy answer. But so we also like to ask our guests on the podcast, like, who, like, some of their favorite women authors are. Oh, gosh. Well, I probably shouldn't say any of my own because
2: that would be, like, saying your favorite child and you're not... <laughs> But the problem is I don't have that much time to read for pleasure. Oh, I love Rachel Kushner. I think she is a badass. I would do anything to publish her, but she probably wouldn't want to be published by me because I am not nearly smart enough to publish her, which makes, I'm not smart enough to publish any of the women I publish. I'm just just lucky and, uh, sometimes charming. Um, but I think Rachel Kushner's a genius. I love The Mars Room. I think she's, she's so funny. Um, and I just think she's brilliant. Oh gosh. Right now I'm reading Lauren Grass, Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. I think she is fantastic. She's just so, her writing is, it's so accessible, but it's also brainy. You know, she's, she's a brain, which yeah. i I love, and I think, I think, I definitely think there's a stigma against brainy women fiction writers, and I love Lauren Groff.
0: Are there any women editors that you really admire in the work that they're doing right now? Oh, that's a good
2: question. I mean, I I admire my colleague. I have the colleague Jenna Johnson, who is, she's great, really good at her job, and asks me really hard questions. So I I both admire her and her list, and I um, appreciate her as a colleague. You know, it's funny. I know so many agents. I don't actually know that many editors because the, the people I'm in, interacting with mostly are are the agents. Oh, uh, I love Laura Pritchesepe at Riverhead. She's great. I used to work there, um, but I, I like admire her list right a bit. Oh, um, I love Lee Boudreau. Um, she is now at Doubleday, but she was at Echo for a really long time, and then had her own imprint at Little Brown, and now is at Doubleday. She. I love her taste. She's a Southerner, like you gals. she um she's got a great list and and it just has an enormous amount of energy. I love Nan Graham's list at Scribner. She has the best eye on the planet. I like I'm trying to think like who I've lost auctions to. like who's beaten me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Thank you so much, Emily, for coming on the podcast and talking to us about your work that you do and the industry and Lucia Berlin. We really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks so much.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I appreciate the work you guys do too.
0: We'd like to thank Emily Bell for talking to us about her editorial work on Evening in Paradise and a manual for cleaning women by Lucia Berlin, both of which are out from FSG. You can find more work by Emily Bell on FSG Originals or FSG.com, where she works as an editor for, for our Strauss and Guru. And of course, all of Emily's information and where you can find more of her work will be linked in the show notes. We'd also like to say a special
1: thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thanks for listening to Reading Women and we'll talk to you soon.